0: Our identity in Christ as a new creation impacts every area of life, marriage, family, work, even how we engage culture. Let us pray. Father, as we come again to your word through Paul and Colossians, as we come to the subject of marriage, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to think biblically about marriage, And for those of us who are married, to live consistent with biblical truth in our marriages. Father, we live in a time where even your design and definition for marriage has been attacked by culture and enable us, oh Father, to stand as the light of truth that reflects your word and your will for marriage and we pray this in Christ's name amen would you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 as we read together verses 18 through 25 then the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird Of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed. Up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus far the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we return to the sermon uh, series Colossians, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We pick up where we left off about seven or so weeks ago at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 where the Apostle Paul begins looking at the at the practical implications of all that he has taught in Colossians up to this point. And the central message of his teaching, Colossians chapter 1 verse 1 through Colossians chapter 3 verse 17, may be stated like this. Believers are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as new creations in Christ. The believer is is no longer identified with that old man, that old sin nature in bondage to sin, but is identified with Christ Jesus, being in Christ, participating in both his death and his resurrection. Therefore, as new creations in Christ, identified with Christ we are called to walk worthy of the Lord and to walk worthy of the Lord in thinking biblically about all of life. So some of you here this morning may not be married. You may be a widow or widower and you may be thinking, what does this message have to do with me? It has everything to do with you because walking worthy means that you think biblically about marriage irrespective if you're married or not you have an obligation you have a privilege to think about marriage from God's word and then secondly those of us who are in marriage we not only are to think about marriage biblically but we are to live consistent with the biblical teaching in our marriages so this message has something for everyone here today to identify with Christ, to walk worthy, to think and behave biblically. Thus, Paul begins this section by calling believers uh, to walk worthy as new creations by thinking about and behaving in marriage. Colossians 3, 18 through 19, Paul just starts right out, wives submit, To your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So for the next three weeks we'll be looking at marriage. Today my goal is to look at more of an overview of marriage. Some of you are already stressed out because you did the unthinkable. You actually turned the sermon outline and you found that there are seven points to this sermon I told Derek I was going to outdo him, having not been in the pulpit for seven weeks or so. I'm at seven-point sermon. I'm getting my due. Let's see if you say that after the seven points. And so we, we, we want to say, what is God's word on and will for marriage? We want to look at that. In this, this overarching summary, in an overarching summary fashion this morning. And then the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the wife's role in marriage and the husband's role in marriage. On June 26, 2015, in the Obergefell versus Hodge case, the Supreme Court revised the 2014 Sixth Circuit's decision that ruled state level bans on same-sex marriage were constitutional. And in this decision of the Supreme Court, they also ruled contrary to a law that had been passed way back in 1996 called the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. So in 2015, the Obergefell versus Hodge decision of the Supreme Court said this, the 14th amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex and to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state. Man's word on and will for marriage as reflected in the current law in our country is contrary to God's word. It redefines the biblical understanding of marriage in allowing same-sex marriage. And what we need to affirm today is walking worthy and upholding God's word on and will for marriage may land us in court. Baker Jack Phillips, who has prevailed in two Supreme Court decisions both in 2018 and this year, and a florist with the last name Stutzman, who recently appealed to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court chose not to take her case, allowing a ruling in a Washington state court to stand that was a ruling against her. They have experienced the consequences of standing for biblical truth on marriage against man's redefinition of marriage. Phillips refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Stutzman refused to make floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding. And they did so on the grounds that it would violate their conscience, their religious convictions. Now what's interesting about both of these Christians who have been all over the the public square and in the media for now several years, especially Phillips, is that they would gladly serve any gay person that walked in their shop. They would sell them flowers and sell them cupcakes. What they refused to do was to make a cake and to make floral arrangements that would celebrate something that is against God's law. And they were dragged in front of the courts for it, even to the Supreme Court of our land. As new creations in Christ who are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, we must think biblically about all of life. I am concerned about Christians who say, well, my religious beliefs are my personal beliefs, and they even vote differently at elections. No. That is not what we're called to do. We are called to think biblically about all of life and to vote biblically And to seek that our government passes laws consistent with God's word. And not only are we to think biblically about all of life, and that means vote biblically, and that means petition our government to behave and to pass laws biblically, but we ourselves are to act biblically in all of life that we are to live consistent with the truth and what we need to understand that when we walk in a manner that is worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him as new creations in christ and we take a stand for god's word on and will for marriage we may pay a price for it in our culture are you willing to pay a price for standing on truth that really is what is before us this morning So to this end, I'll remind us of seven truths of God's word on and will for marriage. And as I said um, earlier, that we'll also pick up with the roles in marriage in the next several weeks. So I'm just going to go through seven truths from the Bible about marriage that reflect God's word on and God's will for marriage. Marriage. Number one, God's word on and God's will for marriage teaches that marriage is His institution. He ordained it, it was His idea. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. God, God promised to provide Adam with a helper fit for him, a companion, not a clone of Him, but a companion that was a match for him, that complemented him, and then vice versa, Adam complementing Eve. So we embrace complementarianism in our understanding of marriage, not egalitarianism, which ultimately says there's no authority structure in marriage, the husband and wife are just equal. No, we believe there are roles in marriage, we believe there's an authority structure in marriage. We believe in complementarianism. In verses 19 through 20, Adam was given the privilege and authority of naming all the animals. Just think of that parade of animals, animals that, were, uh, that were marched before him. And, and he, he named them. And yet, as he looked at all those animals passing by, as he named every one of those animals, he found no companion in all of them. And God fulfilled his promise. He created Eve a companion that was fit, that complemented him. and We, we find the, the undeniable proof that marriage is God's institution in these words in verse 22 of Genesis 2. And he, God, brought her to the man. So in our wedding ceremonies, I think it's very significant that the father gives away the bride. That is, or the bride is given away by the father or his representative in the case the father has deceased. And that images the fact that God is the ultimate father of the bride. It's his institution. He provided Adam and Eve for one another. It's his idea. He ordained it. But I want us to think in just a moment about man's word on and will for marriage is a denial and actually a rebellion against God's ownership of this institution of marriage. How prideful is man? to redefine and to act as sovereign over the design of marriage. Number two, God's word on and will for marriage teaches that he has the absolute right to define it define it in this way, as a union between one man and one woman. It's his institution. He can set whatever parameters he chose to set. He can define it in whatever way he chose to define it. The Hebrew text is abundantly clear in verses 22 through 25 that we see clearly masculine nouns referring to Adam, man, husband, feminine nouns referring to Eve, wife, woman. In other words, two genders are distinguished in the scriptures very specifically. God took a rib from the man, masculine noun, and made the woman, female noun, verse 22. If we look back at chapter 1, verse 27, where we read that God created humankind, male, masculine, female, feminine. You kind of think, why is Tim going through all... In our day, we have to be ever so specific. Because of people's understanding of marriage in our culture, anything might go. And so we have to get down to the elementary school. We have to get down to kindergarten. I'm looking at Renee, our kindergarten teacher. And get back to the very basics of boy, girl, blue, pink, XXXY. Because our culture has gone insane with ignoring what is so plain in Scripture and in God's created order the biology the science involving procreation it points to maleness and femaleness it points to two distinct genders in verse 28 of chapter 1 of genesis be fruitful and multiply marriage is defined by god as one man and one woman being bound together as husband and wife in the institution of marriage. And man's word on and will for marriage is an arrogant quest for autonomy. It is an insane and undeniable rejection of the order of life God has created and the way in which he has defined it. Number three, marriage is covenantal. Some of you may remember the Richardsons, Guy Richardson who was involved with RTS and Jackson and, and Mr. and Mrs. Richardson came here and they did a marriage conference, which I found to be very helpful. And, and Guy gave a definition for marriage that I've co-opted and used since then. And he began this definition of marriage in this way, marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment. God's word on and will for marriage is a man and a woman enter an irrevocable covenant commitment to be husband and wife in other words marriage is permanent till death do us part we find this in verse 24 of genesis 2 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife in verse 24 the inseparable union is understood as as cleaving hold fast cleaving to one another, adhering to one another, literally being glued together, this super glue that holds the marriage together. And so we might say that, that marriages and, and, and marital love are not to be based on feelings that ebb and flow and come and go, but are to be based on this irrevocable covenant commitment that stands. We see this in verse 24, so in the marriage vows, the traditional marriage vows that so many of us have used, I, husband, take you, wife, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, for better for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live, and the wife vows similarly. Though we understand scripture's teaching on on a narrow set of biblical grounds or reasons that necessitate, if not allow for divorce, man's word on and will for marriage makes it more of a contract that is easily broken and not an irrevocable covenant commitment. Number four, marriage is intimate, exclusively so. The last part of verse 24 points of physical intimacy in marriage becoming one flesh is that one flesh principle that we see in Genesis 2:24 the boundaries of God's gift of human sexuality is within the covenant of marriage and we know all too clearly and sadly so that culture this world has perverted human sexuality it's a consequence of the fall God's word on and will for marriage restores that physical intimacy within the boundaries of marriage where the husband and wife are able to be naked before one another physically, spiritually, and emotionally and not experience shame. Marital eros in the Greek, erotic love, is is to build marriage and, and strengthen that bond between husband and wife. The gift is so important and so powerful that, that God has set in his word the one-flesh principle. Where that husband and wife are to be physically in union with one another exclusively so. so. And adultery breaks that one-flesh principle. In marriage, spouses forsake all others to be intimate only with one another. And our culture, according to man's word and his will with regards to marriage, not only perverts human sexuality, but rejects God's one flesh principle, even celebrating unfaithfulness. Number five, marriage is companionship. And we see this most poignantly in verse 23 with Adam's words, At last. Of, of all the, the parts of Genesis 2 it's that at last that I just, I just can't uh, read that without just smiling thinking of poor Adam there looking at all these animals and thinking where in the world is, is, is my helpmate I'm in big trouble and yet God provided a companion that matched him that complimented him that completed him and he said at last I have a best friend At last, I have a co-regent where together we can fulfill the cultural mandate. And by the way, to to fulfill the cultural mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. That takes two genders, XXXY. At last, my loneliness has been alleviated. Single people can be fulfilled in all of life. God gives that gift to them. But we see here for Adam and the design of marriage that loneliness is dealt with. The Greek word phileo is simply understood as love between friends. Adam and Eve were able to do life together as a team, truly best friends, as lifelong companions. Man's word on and will for marriage may emphasize companionship, but listen, (laughs) what, what kind of companionship? do we see today? It's a distortion of the biblical principle of companionship. The meaning of marriage according to man will expand and adapt to cultural pressure. A couple becomes a threesome, a threesome becomes a foursome, a foursome monogamy becomes polyamory. I mean, anything goes in our culture today, according to man. Six, marriage is cultural. What I mean by this, marriage is for all cultures. Our passage today is about the institution of marriage, but notice the context of it. it. It was given in the context of God giving the cultural mandate. Christian marriage by a minister of the gospel and part of a church worship service is the ideal, no doubt about that. But it is legitimate for governments to issue marriage licenses licenses, for civil magistrates to even perform marriages, for human governments to regulate the institution as long as their marriage laws are in accord with God's word. And when we think about that, in our day, our government has gone well beyond God's word on and will for marriage and has grossly perverted it in redefining marriage and allowing same-sex marriage and we need to simply say that any marriage that is, that is not in accord with God's word really is an illegitimate institution. And then seventhly and finally, marriage is sanctifying. In Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that, that, that was read. Uh, Paul, Paul points to sanctification, in particular, as part of the man's role in loving his, his, his wife. But I think we can speak of marriage as a whole to be sanctifying. So remember, I told you that definition that Dr. Guy Richardson's had about marriage. Marriage is an an irrevocable covenant commitment. Well, the second part of his definition is this. Marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment between two imperfect people. And so one thing that that I just see, and this has been said, said before, whenever you're doing marriage counseling, it's actually fairly easy. When a couple comes to you, or when a friend comes to you, and they're, they've got a marriage problem, uh, here, here's just some free advice. You, you, you already know there are two problems to that marriage, the husband and the wife. Why? Because marriage is, is an irrevocable covenant commitment between two imperfect people. Marriage, the institution that God has ordained, is perfect, no doubt. But marriages are imperfect because of the husband, husband and the wife. Now I was joking. Marital problems can be incredibly difficult to parse through all the nuances. But I just want us to see that that I found, generally speaking, a marriage problem is not just one messing up; it's both messing up in one way or another. Conflict is inevitable in marriage if you haven't figured that, that out yet. Verse 24 tells us the man and woman were both naked and were not ashamed. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Now, fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Adam and Eve sinned and became sinners, and they realized they were naked. They experienced shame because they were sinners. Adam and Eve hid from God because of their shame. In verse 11 God questions Adam. He's really um, accusing Adam of being the one responsible for the fall, for eating the forbidden fruit. In verse 12, Adam blames Eve, but really he blames God. The reason I sinned, God, is because of Eve. And by the way, God, is because of you. You gave this woman to me. Blame shifting is part of the fall. It started out right at the very beginning. And we are masters of it. Adam is cursed, verse 17 and following. Difficulty in fulfilling his the cultural mandate. Now sweat, rocks, thorns, thistles come into play. Eve is curse. Verse 16 is interesting because Eve's curse has to do with, with pain in childbirth, but also it has to do with the fact that now she's gonna to try to she's going to find difficulty in marriage because she's trying to usurp her husband's authority all the time. So there is a curse now to Adam and Eve, and I'd be tempted to end here today, but it would really be on an incredibly poor down note, wouldn't it? True, but a, but a bummer for us to leave with just imperfect people. The, the, the story of God's word and will for marriage is, is really encouraging. Because in Genesis chapter 3, and verse 21, God restores Adam and Eve to himself. He does so by sacrificing an animal, skinning it, and clothing Adam and Eve's shame. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us in being the once for all sacrifice, shed his blood to cover us with his atoning blood and his perfect righteousness. You see that? We see the gospel right here in Genesis chapter 3, really hopeful, and much hope for, for marriage. This points to the covering every sinner receives by being covered with Christ. Yeah, marriages are imperfect, but there's hope. The all-sufficient grace of Christ, the, 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 the very theme of Colossians, uh, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ applies to and today if you're struggling in your marriage today if you're struggling with the definition of marriage then here's what you do flee to Christ go to him be covered by him there's hope the sufficiency of Christ covering our shame empowering husbands and wives to repent, forgive and walk in obedience bringing us to repentance and empowering us to think biblically about marriage if we have erred in how we're thinking about marriage God's grace brings us to see our spouses I'll just use, so when I see uh, things, this is tricky. You all can't imagine Renee doing anything wrong. And and, and I would generally agree with that, but yet I have issues with Renee. And if she just get her act together, our marriage would be better. Right? Marriage is sanctifying in that Almost 100% of the time, when I think like that, and not right now I'm thinking out loud, which is always bad for me to do, gets me in so much trouble. But when I think like that, almost always I discover that what I see as a problem in Rene is actually God's tool of sanctification to point out the problem in me. Marriage is sanctifying. And I think so many of our marital problems is because we forget that marriage is the playing field of sanctification, where God is working in both. God is using the husband and the wife as tools to sanctify the other one. It gets a little prickly at times, but nonetheless, that's how God has put it together. We are so proud. We tend to be autonomous. We say we uphold God's word on and will for marriage, but we so easily revert to our own word on and will for marriage. An example is Ephesians 5, verse 21. The passage started out in verse 21 because I think it, it sets the groundwork for Paul's description of the roles in marriage. There the Apostle Paul says, That believers, and in particular husbands and wives, are are to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And yet in our marriages we can be so selfish, we can be so self-centered. Wait a minute, this relationship is for me, it's for my well-being. I'm not getting what I want. And so we can so easily see marriage based on our word and our will instead of God's word and his will. where we should all come is to see that because marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment between two imperfect people this means that the answer for our right thinking about marriage and for our behavior in marriage our practice of being married is our continual need for Jesus. What was the key to your long marriage? The young wife asked the older widow. She said dearie There is a lot of forgiving. And those simple words from this simple older saint, I think really hit at the very core of this truth regarding marriage that it's sanctifying. And because it's sanctifying, we need Jesus. God's word on and will for marriage is that imperfect husband's and imperfect wives are to keep on falling forward by embracing Christ more and more. May our understanding on and our behavior in marriage be firmly rooted in God's word on and God's will for marriage. Marriage is his, let us never forget that. He owns it. He defines it. We can't try to redefine it. It is an irrevocable covenant commitment, and we need to base our marriage on that commitment. It is exclusively intimate, and we should not look other places. It is a companionship. At last, I've got a best friend. It is a blessing to all cultures, as God designed, defines and ordained it. And it is a union between two imperfect people who are continually in the process of sanctification and as such who need Jesus every single day. You see our identity in Christ as new creation impacts all of life. Marriage, family, work, culture as a new creation of Christ may we think biblically about marriage and may we actually practice being married biblically let us pray father thank you for your word on marriage for your will for marriage for your design we are heavy-hearted with respect to where our country is jerry earlier prayed for the supreme court Father we do pray for our government We we pray for the Supreme Court but Father they have erred our culture is in rebellion against you even our city and our state individuals are in rebellion against you the laws of our land are more and more out of accord with your eternal principles. And so we beg for your mercy. And I also pray for us, O Lord, not just in the area of marriage, but every part of your transcendent truth, your true truth, your objective truth that you have communicated to us in your word. O Father, give us the grace that we need to uphold your word, And to live consistent with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.